Mitchell. I am here with Sam Lipsight, who is most recently the author of The Ask. Sam, how are you doing? It's an honor to be in the presence of, of another first world bitch. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm honored to be here too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go right into it. Uh, I wanted to first of all start with the protagonist of this, uh, Milo Burke is almost the obverse to Homeland's Lewis Minor. Uh, you have Teabag writing from this interior place where <laughs> Milo's tendency to, to write has a lot to do with his peripatetic and professional wanderings. Teabag is childless. Milo has Bernie as the son. Uh, Teabag is more aligned with his father, although Milo does have that Spanish knife that he carries around, whereas Milo has this interesting relationship with his mother, who also has this lover, Francine. And also, Teabag spreads, spreads it all. He tells all, but Milo actually doesn't tell us how he's fired. He doesn't tell us about uh, what transpires between his wife later on in the book. So the question, in addition to the connotation here, while while, I, while I'm on the subject of my low, minor low, so <laughs> so I must ask. I'm wondering if you started from some resistant impulse to teabag with the Milo character, whether this initiated itself during the st start of the writing, or whether the revision of this introduced this kind of playing around with with with, the, with a successful book that worked before with uh, with Homeland, and now being a totally different book, but very successful in its own right with the ask. I think that I was once I really got the voice of Milo and the book started to take shape I was as you say resistant to perhaps creating teabag 10 years later or uh, some version thereof. I uh, yes so, so I, but I on the other hand I did not consciously turn 180 degrees every time uh, some element of, of life came up for this character. But uh, I began to notice as I was writing that though there are some similarities perhaps in their commitment to language as a conduit for their pain, uh, both that, that I think that Lewis Minor had more of a romantic streak to him. He was younger. Uh, the world was very disappointing to him, but uh, he, he, I think that he still believed that the world could wake up to the truth as he saw it. And I'm not sure Milo would agree with that. For me, I felt that he was almost a total opposite in the first 100, 150 pages. And then Milo starts to take on an additional life. He starts to be more of a man of action over the latter part of the narrative. And I'm, I'm curious if there was this conscious effort to play him up as an opposite to Teabag, when the yoke of that needless, or that no, the yoke of that dichotomy was essentially thrown off. Wait, the question being, once it once he became fully formed, uh, sprang from the head of Lipsight. I mean, what at what point did he stop being an opposition to Teabag and more being a fully formed character? Well, I think once I really saw him in his world, in his context, uh, and. I had shaken off the the the, the tea bag baggage myself, yeah. uh, and really nailed down what how Milo sounds and how you know his how his worldview uh, presents itself. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, in an interview with the Faster Times, you revealed that your wife read an early version of this book and told you that it sucked, and you continued, but you saw the light once you learned Milo's 
nature of employment. I'm curious why the question of Milo's employment eluded you for so long and why everything snapped into place once you knew exactly what his vocational role was. Well, he's one of the, the first protagonists I've worked with that's had a job. Yeah. Uh, I think in a lot of my stories people had dead-end jobs, but uh, in the novels, the, in the subject Steve, Steve is, his job is just to die, yeah. basically, and in Homeland, uh, T-Bag has some scattershot freelance work, but uh, it's not adding up to much. Yeah. But this is a, this is a man, I, I think that you want to figure out what pressures are being brought to bear on a character, because in a way that's how the, the drama and the conflict is, is created. And I knew that the pressures were economic, um, so they really needed to be related to a job or losing a job and what kind of job would that be and and I think so for the, I don't think it's true I, I've said this before Stanley Elkin I think said he couldn't write unless he knew what job his protagonist had and I don't think that's true for, for me generally but it was true for this book I I, I needed to see uh, what he was losing yeah. was to, it set the, things up, to, to set things in motion was it correctly. The, was it the scope of the book, because this has a broader scope, I think, than your other two uh, novels, well. that demanded this particular role? If you're going to declare war on the great American nightmare, well, you better know where you stand. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's a much broader scope, and it, it, it demanded that element of the character to be precise and delineated, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about dichotomies, which come up very frequently in this book. Late in the book, you observe that Purdy's parlor is split in half. You write, one end was for high-tech pleasures, the other for reading Gibbon while getting blown in the windback chair. Uh, similarly, there's the interesting divide between uh, Horace being this polysexual type, and then also leveling a sexual, sexual harassment charge. I'm wondering how descriptive dichotomies along these lines, or situational or conflict-generated dichotomies, help you to, to zero in on the narrative, because I know you like to digress, which is, which is all great, but I'm, I'm curious about uh, how dichotomies assist you in kind of steering the galleon afford. I think that's precisely right. It's the oscillation uh, that creates the momentum. So it you have X, you have Y, you swing back and forth and that creates forward motion. And so the digressions may seem to me, you know, meander, but they actually are being powered and steered by those kinds of dichotomies and those kinds of uh, conflicts. Well, similarly, you have a lot of flashbacks to previous episodes in your characters' lives in Subject Steve, in Homeland, and in this. And I'm curious how this works or how you manage to control this, these digressive impulses, because sometimes they begin at the beginning of a chapter, sometimes they occur midway through the action. How do you keep things moving forward when you know your mind's going to go off and come up with some funny aspect within the past? Or, or is the character more or less fully formed and you know that this particular incident is going to come up during the course of the book? Well, I think it, from a writing standpoint, it's more that you set these elements into motion and with each page you write, you're kind of limiting the possibilities of, of what this universe can, can contain. And so as you move, the way to move forward is to look back at what you've already put into motion and then reach back and pull that forward again and then you reach back and pull another thing forward again and and so that you know that's part of 
there's that oscillation back and forth. It's this, no, it's that. And there's also the things re-emerging and distorting as you move as you move forward. Painting yourself into a corner, so to speak, this can sometimes be a liability for you, or oh, it's not a liability. It's it's how I can move. Yeah. It's how I can create motion in a book. It's uh, if you want, you know, if you want to know where to go when you're writing, look behind you. Yeah, the dialogue in Homeland tend to be filtered through Teabag's perspective in the sense that it had a particular vocal imprint to it, but it had a some, particular. Uh, it had a particular like teabag oh, right. vocal imprint, but all the characters sometimes spoke in variants of that. But in this, you've actually done some interesting things where uh, a lot of these characters are, are a little bit more distinct, I would argue. Uh, Maddie, the preschool instructor, addresses the parents as Bernie's dad instead of Milo. Uh, you have uh, Sasha using he instead of you when the person's right there in the room. Uh, and then you also have, of course, the kitty diddler who had this gladly next Tuesday wimpy vibe. So. I'm curious how some of these little linguistic attributes were embedded or, or came about. Whether this was part of this notion of, well, I've got to have very distinct dialogue for all these characters to break away from, from, from Homeland a bit? or I don't think it was to break away from Homeland so much as to spread out and see, see what other kinds of uh, voices could, could rise up in the book. And... Uh, and also, just for the sheer play of it, yeah. it was it was a it was every day. It was interesting to, to find new ways for these characters to talk. Yeah. Well, pronouns, though. I mean, that's quite a uh, interesting <laughs> launching point. Uh, why why did you single out word units to, to get the distinct voices for these for these? Well, sometimes you to cre you know we call it creating a voice. Uh, but but really, yeah, you're playing with very small units and shifting things and leaving little things out to kind of make a wrongness that seems right. Yeah. The most surreal moment in the book, I think, is, of course, the cage moment. I don't want to give it away, but uh, this leads me to wonder, because this reminded me very much a lot of the wild ideas in the subject. Steve, are you concerned with how real a particular moment is? I mean, is there a maximum point of where you say, well, maybe this is too wacky for the page. Uh, and, and this seemed to be the, the ultimate every, I, You know, I may live in some alternate reality because I, f I find everything plausible, but, but you know, perhaps it's, I don't try to set out to make it not plausible. I don't set out to make it too wacky. Well, what was the basis for the plausibility for the cage? You, were you aware of any any secret? Is there a secret cages around it that we don't know about? I don't know about I did read, I read some article about large loft spaces somewhere in Brooklyn and I don't think that people were locking themselves into cages so there's a yeah. sort of distortion there but they they were in, in uh, these sort of very small cubicles and you know walled off in, in extraordinary ways to pack as many people in as possible well was sexual congress in this article too, no or? well you know <laughs> that's poetic license <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about food because it forms, aside from the wraps, of course, it forms a very, very interesting behavior. It comes from the food. You have uh, uh, people happy to share it, such as Vargina and the egg salad with Milo. <laughs> then, of course, there's the notion of food serving as a kind of uh, severance package in, in two instances. Uh, then, of course, you have the, the irony of the blue nude ice cream. And... Uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm curious, oh, and then of course Jenny and Lisa plopping cockatoos in each other's mouths. So I'm wondering how the food sharing came about 
along with the sort of the carrot at the end of the stick or the ice cream at the end of the stick in, in these other instances in relation to employment. I mean, was this an offshoot of just eating a lot of wraps during the course of writing this book? Well, there's there's certainly a lot of food in the book. And uh, the sharing thing just it popped up once and then I, I kind of thought it would be a nice thing to to try again and sort of pull a little thematic thread with that. Um, but and then there's the there's also the death row cooking show and there's the um, so yeah there's a lot there's a lot of food stuff and um, I did eat a lot of wraps. Uh, How <laughs> do, many did do, you count them? <laughs> I didn't count them. This was I I was writing a lot at the New York Public Library and I come out and you know I, I really noticed this this rap culture you know W R A P rap culture yeah. uh, around Midtown. It's a quick and easy food to take back to your desk and. Uh, it's it's relatively clean. You won't, you won't spill too much on your keyboard, and I so I see all of these pre-made wraps everywhere, um, and I uh, they just there seemed a kind of innate sadness to them, <laughs> and so they became a theme in the book. <laughs> I'm also curious about the the milk bar that's in this. Uh, right. <laughs> again, going back to issues of research and plausibility. <laughs> First-hand experience, or uh, never been to a milk bar that served breast milk. Although, while the, I was copying the books, uh, I saw something about a, an artist who had in a gallery created a little bar where breast milk was served. So, you know, it must. It's a, there's some current in the air about this. My wife, uh, in addition to being the mother of two children, is a childbirth educator and has. Uh, is in the world of midwives and doulas and and um, so I, I I think I've absorbed a lot of stuff from her the things she thinks about and, and reads and just kind of decided to play with play with a lot of that as well. well this this leads me to wonder what your information saturation attitude was during the course of writing this book. I mean, was this just anything that sort of caught your eye or did you actually load up on specific fields of information that were related to like the art world or the ask world or that kind of thing? Well, um, I don't think it was just any random thing that flitted by. It was, it's always going to be the things, especially since I don't start out with a, an outline, uh, I just start writing and see, see what comes up. Uh, I write the first draft to figure out what I'm actually writing. So I think what kicked up were the things that were really resonating with me, were really kind of churning in me. And, you know, so bigger fields, you know, uh, perhaps raps, perhaps childbirth, perhaps yeah. parenthood, perhaps the economy, perhaps uh, arts education. I mean, all of these things. Uh, but not, and then there may be little filigrees here and there, which are kind of more more random flittings, but but really, these are the things I tend to. I'm trying to find out what I'm thinking about by writing the first draft, and then I then I see what the book can be. Were there any particular subjects that accidentally came about over the course of the first draft, or like the the redo that was initiated by your wife, or any unexpected tangents or subjects that kind of was were like, aha, that's what I need to research, whether it be raps or, or whatnot. Or, yeah, well, it wasn't it wasn't research so much as maybe continued observation, yeah. such as. The, the the economy really collapsed, you know, while I was writing it, and I wasn't trying to write a book about you know life in a collapsed economy. I was just sort of starting out from the 
proposition that things are shitty all the time. Yeah. And so then suddenly now things are very apparently shitty. Yeah. And so it's not that you can kind of reverse engineer the book, but it's you can become aware of that and see that uh, it has the, the pressures on Milo have a wider scope as well. But that also extends from the abandoned storefronts in Homeland, too. So yeah. this has been a constant preoccupation. Yeah, yeah. So essentially you're just updating the readership with these books. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your sentences. Uh, you do something extremely interesting, and that is this syllabic form of internal rhyme. Uh, I'll just give you a number of examples. Uh, a tawny teen in a cocktail dress of skimmy, skimmy hemp. Uh, skippy hemp. Uh, I started to rub myself, and remembering I would have to retrieve Bernie soon, recalled that I'd once done what I was doing with Bernie in the room. So there's the ooh-ooh. Uh, the book's opening line, of course, the Horace, the office tip, was a run-down, demented pip. So I, I, I'm curious whether these particular sounds serve as, I suppose, reference points in your mind to get a sentence right, whether this came from your previous career as, as a lyricist, or possibly the Gordon Lish school rubbing off now after so many uh, so many books and the like. No, I, well, I don't, certainly, if there was a a direct rhyme there, I, I'd be sorry to see it. But I, I am interested in, wor in words that are close yeah. to each other, bouncing off of each other, yeah. colliding, creating various assonances and, and, and such. Yeah. Uh, I'm very aware of the acoustic properties of the sentences and, and I, I listen to them and I like, I like to see those different elements playing off of each other, yeah. uh, the, different, the different sounds, just on the level of the morpheme or, or whatever but um, uh, yeah I've, I mean I've, I think that I was always conscious of it I think studying with Gordon Lich made me really understand the, the, that you could extract some power from paying attention yeah. to the sounds in your sentences and I don't know what I was doing as a lyricist to be quite honest I was <laughs> screaming cryptic lines that couldn't be heard because the guitars were too loud <laughs> Maybe this was part of the syllabic yeah, yeah, quality. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm curious, why, why syllables more so than words? I mean, there's also, I remember, I recall reading Touche Douche, there's yeah. that as well, but but more more often it's this it's this syllabic ride as opposed to a full-blown word tilt boogie. So uh, I, I, I'm curious why it's, it's that. Well, I, I, I guess that's how I, I work. I, yeah. I mean, I, it's not a conscious choice, and I, I think I do it in larger units as well, or... Yeah. Or try to, and I'm very much aware of, you know, the, people talk about sentences, but there's no such thing even as a great sentence. It's about which sentences are around it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, I think that I'm trying to work on on several levels. I also wanted to ask about um, another aspect of your sentence, which is this tendency to just when you think the sentence is over, then you add a comma and a verb phrase that's appended uh, at the end. It's not quite a comma splice, it's almost kind of an alternative verb phrase. <laughs> Just to offer again some examples for, for folks who are listening to this, uh, here's one, like, now an old man with a ducktail haircut and rolled t-shirt sleeves sauntered by. You think the sentence is over, but no, comma, climbed into his wine-dark bearer. Another one, Mara did not speak, comma, cut her lemon chicken into rectilinear bites. So I'm, I'm curious about, uh, and it's more in this book than in the other two novels, and I'm curious as to how how this came about. I, I do it as as well in uh, my book of stories, yeah. probably. I just like the way it speeds up rhythm, it changes rhythm. Um, I I like the jumpiness of it, and uh, 
you know, some people say, why can't you just use a fucking and? <laughs> And sometimes I do, but sometimes I don't. Yeah. Does it present sort of like yeah. almost an alternative fate in that action? Yeah. Is, is that the idea? Or? Yeah, or it kind of compresses uh, time a little bit. Yeah. Um, it, it, does a sev- it does a few things, and, and I've been fond of it. Two characters seem to believe that writing a book will cause them to find the truth or find a lucrative career. There's a Charles Goldfarb's book in which he tries to advance a new approach to transcendentalism in the face of technology and interconnectivity. And then, of course, when Carl at the Happy Salamander tells Milo and De- Denise to fuck off, he announces, I'll write books! <laughs> so, uh, you've said in a recent interview that you don't know what the purpose is of... of writing a comic novel or whether it's actually going to fulfill some greater need but I it's interesting that, that this is shared this this sort of reticence is shared by your characters to some degree and, I, and, I, and I'm curious if uh, really we're overstating the importance of books or these characters are overstating part of the, the importance of books well this is again it's just a part of the the great American compromise being a first world bitch or whatnot or? I'm, I'm curious about my quote where, where I said something you said a quote that I read the interview and regrettably I, I, I failed to track it down before meeting you. I read this days ago where you were saying that you're not sure that what if, about if the comic novel can be important in any sense. But uh, maybe, maybe I should just ask you. So right. <laughs> maybe I hallucinated. I, I don't think I did. But so why? Well, com- I'm sure what I meant to say is I don't I don't know how many people can see it as important. Yeah, uh, I do. I mean, I'm not talking about my book, but in general, yeah. I think books that are have a comedic element have been the books that uh, have fired up my imagination. So, uh, I no books are I, you know books are incredibly important to a, some segment of the population. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not trying to to say otherwise. Yeah. Well, these characters, going back to them and their insistence that books will be a sort of vocational savior, just a general kind of spitball towards Americana or, or some larger <laughs> No, I think I think just about, yeah, there's a, maybe a certain delusion about what a book can do for you yeah. as the author yeah, as opposed to what it might do for readers. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, because Homeland and The Ass both feature variants on the elevator pitch. You have, of course, you know, Miner's Adventure with that that white rapper in the black mink suit. And uh, in this, you have Purdy's insistence that he can deliver the post-perfect elevator pitches. I'm curious about how the the concern for elevator pitches comes about. I mean, it's it's a West Coast phenomenon more than an East Coast phenomenon. So uh, that is rather interesting. Yeah, well, I, I heard it. The phrase maybe first in you know 1991 from an East Coast person, so who was kind of a business a businessman. Yeah. So I, I I think that it's used in in all sorts of uh, commercial pursuits, but uh, it, it's it's always been a kind of delightful convention to me because here you are in this box with a, with a clock running and you have to say something that's going to make somebody else. Yeah. feel something <laughs> I have a very important question to ask and that is in relation to old Overholt now in Homeland there's that moment in which there's the effort by Teabag to get some product placement in there so that he can get a case of old Overholt now I'm reading this and I see old Overholt come up twice in the book so uh, I'm wondering if you have 
reached an arrangement with the folks at Old Overhold? Or I'm trying to get a free case. And it's, if it's going to take me three books, it'll be three books. But, uh, uh, have you tried like, <laughs> contacting them directly? And saying, no. no. I, I, there are always little threads I like to pull from book to book um, just to keep me a, a bit amused as I work. And I, I like to, the sound of old overholt. It sort of opens the oral cavity in a nice way. And, uh, in two so, ways, actually. Yeah, and, uh, so I'm certainly uh, happy to, to keep... To, to keep naming it until somebody at that company notices and uh, you haven't been in touch and reciprocates. With, you haven't been in touch with FSG to say you should. I mean, you got lip sight. You should right. do some old overhaul tie-ins. Right. And get the yeah, case. I think yeah. 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 I, haven't, I haven't pursued that yet, but uh, uh, I'll mention it. <laughs> uh, there's an interesting suspicion of phrases and cliches. Uh, throughout your work, but particularly in this book, the term home invasion that Milo learns for the first time. Wow, he's in the middle of a home invasion. Uh, there's also a number of other moments that Milo writes, the, the phrase good kid made me shudder now, especially when I looked at Bernie, uh, with it'll be okay. We weren't sure where he had picked up that becoming phrase, probably from us as we tried to talk ourselves out of the awful lucidity certain days afforded. And uh, before your time, it was a phrase I was trying not to rely on so much these days. <laughs> I, again, this, this kind of goes back to the other question we were talking about in terms of how one pronoun difference will make a character sound totally different. But I'm curious how the suspiciousness with phrases seem particularly suited to, to Milo uh, and, how, and how that came about. Well, I, I suppose I'm interested in the way in which we're steeped in these stock phrases, we use them all the time, yet some, many of us are also sensitive to the fact that they kind of suppress uh, real connection, suppress uh, real feeling. Yeah. And uh, so there's that bind of being speaking them, being spoken by them, but being aware of how deadening they can be. And so this, char this character who seems pretty attuned to language to begin with is someone who would be aware of that predicament. Huh. Well, there's also a number of invented phrases as well, like touche dev, hind milk smoothie, uh, Horace taunting Milo with antediluvian slang. Uh, you have uh, often, you know, homilies that are warped, you know, death and food instead of death and taxes. Uh, the happy salamander, this is one of my favorites, closed indefinitely due to pedagogical conflicts, which I, I like that so much. I, I'm wondering, uh, again, if you obviously have a concern for cliches, but you also have this interesting concer concern for the new phrases that pop up. Your efforts I'm to always sort of, obsessed with, yeah. with the lingo of any field, and I have friends and business, and I'm always pumping them for, yeah. you know, what are they saying now? I don't even care what it means. I don't, don't try to explain what the business part of it is I just yeah. want the, I just want the phrase you know and, people who used to dev um, no I know that biz dev was always a big one yeah. so I made up to dev or maybe I didn't maybe people do use it but as far as I know that how, how, how do you uh, seek out such phrases I mean clearly urban dictionary can only go so far you know well I, li I just listen yeah. I listen to people I listen to people talking and uh, and sometimes I'm not even sure what they're saying, but I'm hearing these, these wonderful, awkward, but also poetic things coming out of their mouths. Uh, yeah, so I, that, that example is 
business development became biz dev and everybody was saying biz dev, biz dev. And there's also institutional development, which is a phrase. And I didn't, you know, I just got to touche dev because, but that was because I got to it through Horace, that character Horace, because that's the way his mind would work. Do you have any, are you sitting on a bunch of notebooks that have all these phrases in them or are you just mentally, mentally committing them to, or committing them to mentally, there's a phrase right there. <laughs> <laughs> committing them to memory. I think, I always think I'm committing them to memory and then I can't remember them when I try to, yeah. but they bubble up, you know, if I'm working on something long enough, years, they will bubble up eventually. I, yeah. I believe that. I, I hope. I hope that's true. Shaking a stick at the beast until it returns. Precisely. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, then this makes me ask. Well, do you even really keep a lot of notes in relation to your books? Is it just a matter of like only embracing the screen or the text in front of you? I think for the most part that's true. Especially in the beginning. I think as I'm working, as the piece is starting to open up and also as I'm starting to have to make some decisions or I'm, there are a bunch of characters now in motion, a bunch of elements, then I'll start taking notes. But it's, they're mostly notes about what am I going, what, what's, what am I going to do tomorrow? Yeah. You know, <laughs> when I hit the screen. Yeah, but, but you really... I think I'm really trying to keep a lot of that out, a lot of the forecasting out as, for as long as possible. Do you, do you do this because if you have too much notes, you're going to have too much to, to wheel together into a book? Or, or yeah, is it I a think, time management thing? Or? No, it's, I mean, it's just the way I work. Everybody yeah. works uh, in a different manner. But for me, I, uh, if I have all of the stuff beforehand, then I find myself just trying to shoehorn these, these ideas or characters or plots that uh, when I thought of them separately seemed wonderful into something that maybe they don't belong in yeah. whereas if I can just stay with what, I, with what words are there so far then what comes in can be uh, more organic and more uh, fitted to the, the, the general movement of the piece so for you you need to have this tension against narrative movement or, or you have to have conflict to I suppose keep maybe you could describe this I just try, I just try to understand I just keep it small I work yeah. from I start at a point and then slowly broaden it but uh, I'm not trying to pour everything in at once I'm trying to keep it as spare as possible until I figure out what's going on and then as I go all of these things emerge a character emerges a situation emerges a a turn in the narrative happens but I need to keep myself surprised by that stuff so Yuri's hand job the cage bubble we alluded to earlier Bernie's foreskin uh, numerous descriptions of ejaculation uh, is there no limit to literary movements involving the penis <laughs> to the to movements of the penis or <laughs> movements, oh, moments. About the yeah, penis. <laughs> movements moments phrases I guess uh, I guess I've got a one track mind I don't know what to say <laughs> food and sex it just keeps keeps coming up in the book yeah yeah I'm wondering because you're dwelling so heavily. That'll be on a two-track mind. Yeah. <laughs> two-track mind. Maybe maybe an eight-track mind. I don't know. Uh, no, but I mean, I'm wondering if uh, you try to make sure that you, if you're referring to someone coming, whether that's not going to be the same as before, whether it's suitably different. Is this something that kind of keeps you up at night, so to speak? Or? <laughs> I yeah, I'm I'm trying to. Keep it fresh. Let's put it that way. I, uh, since I do tend to maybe describe those things more than other writers, 
where, you know, other writers might tend to just cut to the curtain billowing in the window the way they did in movies uh, to give us the sense that something something has happened along those lines. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to, you know, find uh, variations. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about the tendency to sometimes be very specific about sequences, tell a story in joke form. Uh, I will answer your question in, re in reverse sequential order. Uh, uh, how does the sequence of, of events along these lines assist you in, uh, is it just again going back to the idea of, of the limitations producing interesting results? Or? Yeah, part of, that's partly it and it's also, I think the job is you do have certain amounts of information that need to be conveyed to the reader for the book to function as a narrative, but you do everything you can to suppress that feeling that this is information being conveyed. Yeah. So you find a, a new, interesting way to, to, have, that, uh, to have that occur. And uh, so you have a character, you know, do that reverse order thing. Um, you do it in a, in a joke. You, do, you, you talk about the elevator pitch that we mentioned earlier. Uh, I think these are all ways to get a, you know get the information across to the reader in an entertaining way. Uh, I, I think I've, one thing that I've always uh, thought about that Gordon Lish, who you mentioned earlier, said and once was that there's no getting to the good part. It all has to be the good part. So rather than just have a character dump some information and we, we kind of all take a pause while we just soak in the, the raw data so we can get back to the, the fun part of the book. We, the idea is to make it all exciting. Yeah. Well, do you feel that you have been largely successful at, at, at making it all good like that? Uh, well, that's what I'm trying to do. It's for others to judge if I have. But yeah. yeah. But your, when your wife is telling you it sucks. <laughs> Not this version. Yeah, well, I know. I'm <laughs> All right. Would you say that you are one social network behind, like Milo? Yes. Or I'm between social networks. <laughs> uh, between relationships. Yes, and relationships. exactly. I'm between social networks right now. I'm just trying to be with myself a little bit. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you just one last thing. How did the the dad's Spanish dueling knife come about? Uh, are you a knife guy, or uh, did this just seem to be the ideal metaphor for Milo's? essential passive aggression yeah, yeah. It, I came up because I do remember my father having a knife like that and then I just sort of uh, created a story around it <laughs> but I was always very impressed with the knife do you have a knife now or I don't have it now uh, do you have any guns any weapons it's a lot of death in your books I don't have I have things that could be used as a weapon but I don't have any weapons <laughs> uh, secret moves you'll have to keep to yourself exactly yeah. home defense <laughs> home defense against home home invaders yeah alright well, Sam thanks very much it was a pleasure chat. it was a pleasure thanks Sam. you say I want your heart you says I'm asking I think I'll take my chances you say I shot the